The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. All right, this is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, before we get going, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, We really want to get the subscription numbers up. And if you listen to us weekly, please hit that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it. Um, Let's get right into it. The West Virginia Mountaineers lost a hard-fought game to TCU by the score of 41-31. to I'm normally okay with WVU losing a tight contest against a top 10 opponent, but, uh, you know, just once again, it, it felt like a game WVU could have won and they just simply didn't. And so, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I'm normally okay losing a game like this, but this one feels different. The Mountaineers just didn't make enough plays when it mattered. I walked out of that stadium feeling basically the same way WVU fans have grown accustomed to feeling in these last four years. And that's disappointed. So what are your thoughts on the loss? Yeah. I mean, it's all in, I mean, football is just a compilation of micro decisions and it was on full display um, during this game, how inept um, our coaching is kind of across the board in some of those micro decisions. I mean, um, from the adjustments to um, the game management all across the board. I mean, we we just kept on holding ourselves back, and that has been a staple of this coaching staff since they've stepped foot on campus. And it's just super frustrating as a fan. I mean, um, it felt like before, whenever we were a WVU fan, you know, even going back to the end of the Nealon days, when it was a close game, you at least felt there was like a 50-50 shot that you'd come out with a win. But in Neil Brown coached games, I mean, it feels like if you pull out a win like you did against Baylor, it's an adrenaline rush because that never happens. And that's not the way it should feel. Right. I mean, um, and, and most of the time when we pull off victories against teams like that, it's normally because something happened. Like if Blake Shapin didn't get knocked out of that game, we might not even be celebrating that victory. And honestly, I got to go all the way back to Neil Brown's first year against Kansas State for the last time. I can think of a really, really good quality win that you can look back on and be happy about. Um, There's not really from 2020 that stick out. There's not a lot from 2021 that stick out. And I mean, look at our victories this year. We, We beat Towson, who's an FBS school. We beat Virginia Tech, who's having one of their worst seasons that I can remember since I've been a football fan. And then we beat uh, a Baylor team that that was looking really good until we knocked out their starting quarterback. So uh, once again, it's just classic Neil Brown. You have a couple wins. None of them are significant. And, uh, you know, you have some really bad losses. And then you have a lot of close game losses. And uh, I mean, compares to Iowa state right now, who has a lot, a lot of losses and close games. However, Matt Campbell kind of has a track record of winning those. And so I feel like their fan base can kind of give him a break because they're known for winning those games for several years until now. 
Neil Brown has never been known for winning those games. And so it's, it's just kind of wearing on us as a fan base. I feel like. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think, you know, real quick, we can even go over kind of some of the, the key plays or the key situations where the coaching staff failed, because, you know, we always have the fans out there that are constantly sticking their neck out for Neil Brown. And I understand he's a nice guy and we all want to root for him, but it's just not working out. But for me, um, you know, that the key plays were, you know, one, we were terrible in the second half on offense. Um, we only scored 10 points after we scored 21 in the first half. Um, three of those points came off of a muff punt. Um, it would have been a three and out the drive before that if it weren't for that muff punt. We failed to score when we were inside TCU's 10, 10 yard line on four straight plays, came away with no points. Um, we were three, we did, had a three and out to begin the fourth quarter. We got sacked once had two incompletions. Um, and we also had a three and out right after Malachi Ruffin had his interception. We had two incompletions. And for some reason, we also ran the ball for a loss. Um, and that's just the fourth quarter. That's just one reason there. I mean, I I have another list here, but, um, you know, I want to pause and let you, you know, talk about some of yours because I'm sure there's some crossover. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how our defense actually played very well in the second half for once and our offense just sputtered out. Um, It just seems to be the way it is gone. Um, When when one side's rolling, the the other side can't complement it. But can we go back and talk about those four plays where we failed to score inside their 10? I mean, the first play was a jet sweep to Bryce Ford Wheaton. I mean, if you want to do that, like somewhere around the 50 and just try it out, I get it. But Bryce Ford Wheaton isn't exactly a speedster, so I'm not sure why you're trying a play like that with him when you're inside the 10. And that was before C.J. Donaldson got hurt. He was sitting right there. You could have gave him the ball. And then the craziest play I've seen all year, they do a quarterback draw with J.T. Daniels, a, a quarterback who's not a running quarterback. And on top of that, he has looked extremely uncomfortable on the move with the ball in his hands, whether it's a pass play, whether it's a run play, pretty much the entire season. So why are you calling that play right there? And then they throw back-to-back fates. Um, I get it if you have one questionable play call inside the 10, but to have four straight and not score, I, I just don't get it. Yeah, and I know uh, Neil Brown's excuse was, one, um, the third down play was actually supposed to be a running play, um, but JT checked out of it, which you know, that doesn't eliminate the previous two play calls. And the fourth one, which I thought was kind of valid, was um, Caden Prather getting interfered with on that that fade there. But again, you had three downs before that to get in a better position or even score. So, you know, I feel like you're kind of putting the refs in a tough spot. That's a call that probably should be made um, because I, I definitely think Prather was interfered with. But, you know, it's fourth down inside the 10 in a close ball game a lot of the times the refs are going to kind of let things go a little bit more, even if things should be called. So you can't rely on the ref to throw a flag um, in that situation. You need to take advantage of the four plays you have inside the 10. I'm with you. Also, it's worth mentioning, those were two terrible balls by JT Daniels. I mean, neither one really looked catchable. And honestly, if he would have thrown it better to Caden Prather, the refs might have been more inclined to throw the flag, but the ball went so far over his head, and yeah, he was interfered. He he didn't get the jump, but uh, I don't know. To me, it looked like it would have been pretty much uncatchable regardless, which might have been why 
the refs decided to keep the flag in their pocket on that play. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, um, like you said, I think Caden Prather couldn't extend for it. And I don't know how high Caden Prather could jump. He would have had to get off the ground pretty high. And then again, if he would even get his hands on it, then even if the defender wasn't interfering, he could lay a hit right in the gut. And who knows if he holds on then there's so many ifs to that statement. So, I mean, again, it's just not something you want to rely on. Um, you know, you can't rely on the refs bailing you out in those situations. And it seems like Neil Brown wants to play the refs more than he wants to uh, fix what his players are doing on the field. And that kind of leads me into um, the, uh, the the five-minute drill, I guess, if you want to call it, um, in the fourth quarter where they actually did score a touchdown, but there was no urgency. Five minutes, and you would think in a five-minute drive you would have something crazy like a, you know, a 16 or 18-play drive, but it was 12 plays, which, you know, seems kind of appropriate for five minutes, but in that situation, while there was still like nine minutes left to go in the fourth quarter, you would hope to have a little bit more urgency. You would hope to have a little bit more of a no huddle going. And yet um, we were milking down the clock kind of Neil Brown style over and over again. That Even the announcers said it every play that they were milking the clock. Like you're down by two scores. You got to score twice here. And, you know, it, there was just no urgency. So I'm not sure what he was trying to do there. I don't know why he was playing with such a razor thin edge um, where even if, if and when you do score, you're really relying on so many different factors, whether it be an onside kick, which we tried um, another reason um, that things didn't work out or you're worried um, relying on your defense, which has been shaky, even no better in the second half to force a three and out, which did, actually did happen. Um, actually, we got the interception. Um, you're, you're forced to burn your timeouts. You're forced to do all these other things, but why put yourself in that situation when you can score with say seven minutes left or six minutes left, and give yourself more time for error. Um, and that's honestly what it came down to, that that three and out after the rough and interception, you know, that kind of killed all of our chances. And you don't have another possession after that, really. You, you wasted too much time. Yeah, I, I, and I feel like this isn't the first time we've seen this. A lot of fans might not remember, but in the Kansas game, they did the same exact thing. We only needed one score but they were taking their good old time getting down the field to score at the end of regulation. And thank God they did score on like, I think it was a fourth down play. And, uh, you know, they only had like 13 seconds left, I think when they scored. So they were doing the same thing in Kansas. It's just no one remembers because it worked out. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's just like, because that's what our offense is comfortable with. That's how Neil Brown wants to play. And so, if there's one thing this team has proven is they don't like to adjust or go outside their comfort zone. So I feel like even when we need a quick touchdown, this offense still just like takes it down to almost the last second on the play clock. They take their good old time. They do a lot of run plays. It seems like where you don't want to be running it in that situation. Um, but I don't know. I, I just feel like that's, that's what they're comfortable with, so that's what they do. What we did see in this game also in the first half is there was times where we would play. Um, I don't know if you want to call it a hurry up, but they would call Hut with you know, 10, 15 seconds left on the play clock, which is a lot for our team. So, And it seemed to be successful. And then it seemed like in the second half, we kind of went back to just very slow, methodical, 
And I don't know. I don't understand why they're so reluctant to not play with a little bit of urgency um, in any quarter, really, and just sprinkle it in there more often. Yeah, I, I like the play calling in the first half. I mean, not only was it more productive, but we saw a lot more variation that we hadn't seen before. We saw a lot more motion and we saw a lot more handoffs going to guys in motion. We saw some more variety in um, formations. Uh, you know, we did see some hurry up in there occasionally and the offense just looks smoother. I mean, I know we did have, um, you know, a turnover in there um, on the JT Daniel sack, but other than that, I mean, the offense looked really good. It looked completely different than what we've seen, um, especially against Texas tech in Texas um, you know, it was just, it was only short lived because WVU is a team of one half. I mean, we never, I don't think we've played a full, full quarters, um, or at least we don't very often under Neil Brown. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing. I mean, this is an offense known for, you know, doing some boneheaded penalties or making mistakes here and there that we criticize them for. I feel like if you play a little faster, it gives these guys less time to think. They're not sitting in their stance as long. It's just go out there, here's the play, run it, let's do it. And I feel like that would probably be better for a team who does seem to overthink stuff and make mistakes at critical situations. Whereas if they were just getting up to the line, calling it, I mean, it's just less thinking by your young players is the way I see that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think right now just seeing – the past few weeks and, and kind of reassessing everything Neil Brown has done to uh, during his career at WVU, you know, I have, I have decided that, you know, I think regardless of how the finish season finishes, I want him fired. And, um, you know, I, I've compiled a list. Um, I have seven things, um, seven concrete reasons on why Neil Brown needs to be fired. Um, so if you're done with TCU, we can jump into that. Let's do it. All right, so reason number one on my um, reasons Neil Brown should be fired is no player development. And we've talked about this ad nauseum over the course of our um, podcast, but, you know, I, I came up with a few reasons to show how it's just there's no development there. You have no quarterbacks have developed under his tenure, and we can go through all of them, but we all know that quarterbacks have either gotten worse or stayed the same underneath of him. Um, any linebacker that we've had hasn't really gotten any better under Neil Brown's tenure either. I mean, we've brought in transfers to fill in holes. And we've had weaknesses there. We have had Charles Woods and Aubrey Burks show improvements in the secondary, but anyone else who has shown improvement has transferred out. Sean Martin is really the only guy who's improved on the defensive line. I didn't include Dante Stills because I believe he was recruited by Holgerson and he kind of did his own thing. Um, Mylan and Frazier are the only two guys on the offensive line that I've seen notable improvement from. We're still kind of seeing the same issues with. And running back is really the only position where we have seen players come in and get better year after year after year, it, regardless of how much time they had with them. And, you know, I, I don't put that on Neil Brown. I put that on Chad Scott because – you know, it just seems like he has a way of working with the running backs. But across the board, you know, it's, it, even the receivers, there's still drop issues. There's still issues with route running. So, I mean, outside of a handful of players over four years, where's the player development? Yeah, I'm with you. And like you said, we've talked about this before, and I, I've highlighted it many times. That is honestly my biggest issue with them. I like 
his recruiting classes. Um, a lot of people say, well, we just don't have the players here to compete. I don't necessarily agree with that. Even if that was true, that's still on the head coach. He brings in the guys to play here. But I don't agree with that. I think we do have talent here. I just think this coaching staff is not getting the full squeeze out of this, honestly, is the only way I can put it. They're not living up to the potential that these players could have. Even at wide receiver, I feel like we've had talent. We're just not seeing it. Um, I think Sam Brown, who went to Houston, has a lot of talent. Um, And, I mean, we just never gave him a chance to play. Of course, Caden Prather is showing flashes of greatness here. Um, Winston Wright was a pretty decent. Yeah, Allie Jennings. Yeah, I mean, look at what he's doing. Where is he at now? Old Dominion, right? Yeah, Old Dominion. Yeah, and he was leading the NCAA at one point in yards. And so, yeah, I mean, there's guys here who have talent. I just feel like, once again, you're just not getting the the full squeeze out of this juice for the players. And, yeah, that does go to coaching. The offensive line is improving. It's improved a lot, a lot this year. But, um, you know, three bad years, one good year. I mean, <laughs> it's good that they're, you know, going upwards. But, I mean, I don't know. I guess you can give them a pass on that. The biggest thing is definitely what you mentioned, quarterback. Quarterback play has not gotten better at all. Obviously, JT Daniels is a lot better than Jared Dagey was, but um, doesn't it feel like we're not even getting the full JT Daniels this year as well? I mean, he's got 12 touchdowns and seven picks. He's not bad. He's playing well, but um, I I think every – yeah, I feel like if the, every WVU fan's being honest, we thought we were going to be getting a little more out of his play this year. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons that go into that, but um, that flows well into my next point, which is he recruits well, but he can't retain players. Um, so we've had 68 transfers in four years. We've People have talked about this over and over again, but what I also want to talk about is his un- inability to evaluate talent from the transfer portal. So... Since 2019, we have had 18 guys who we've brought in through the transfer portal that have started for us. Really, only four of them have been good. And and I compiled a list so we can determine who's good and who's not good. But starters that we have gotten from the transfer portal, Alonzo Adai, Jared Deggie, Sean Ryan, George Gamble, Austin Kendall, Scotty Young Jr., Tyler Sumter, Lance Dixon, Wesley McCormick, Rashad Ajayi, Jasir Young, Mark Floyd, Park Grothaus, and Brian Bolande. The four guys that I have that are actually good are JT Daniels, Doug Nestor, Charles Woods, and Tony Fields. Yeah, if you want to throw in Sumter in there too, but I mean, it is the punting position. It's nothing to get super jazzed up about. But uh, right, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, a dive was okay, but he definitely had some frustrating situations last year same with sean ryan um i mean at times they were solid but at times they were making really bad plays in the secondary as well so um yeah i mean none of those really stand out except for the ones you just mentioned yeah and you know i think about how some of these others and i bring that up because schools are kind of rebuilding on the fly like kansas and um baylor and Uh, TCU. And a lot of that is on the backs of good transfer classes and the ability to evaluate that talent and bring in guys to fill in holes. Um, They don't have to be superstars. They don't have to be great, but if they can come in and be productive starters, that's huge, you know, and and 
how many of those guys on that list were maybe backup quality, but were thrust in the starting roles because the coaching staff went out, identified them as someone who they wanted to play more. And they came in and played more and just underwhelmed. They probably would have been great as backups or as reserve guys, but coming in and starting just wasn't for them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And on top of that, we just haven't really developed depth at all either. And you can go back to, you know, the original excuse a lot of people gave Neil Brown is that Dana didn't leave him a whole lot. And that's kind of fair why we didn't have depth all these years. Um, But, I mean, that has been a huge issue. It, It seems like every team has injuries and most teams have someone who they can plug in and and be respectable. I feel like a lot of the time when we have injuries, the guy we're sticking out there is like a walk on or somebody who's playing out of position. There's just no depth anywhere. Yeah. And that kind of leads into number three, uh, which is we do not fire position coach when there is lack of development. So you look at, Matt Moore with the offensive line where we stalled so long um, with the guys that we had on the offensive line without seeing development. Shadon Brown in the secondary where, you know, a lot of it was a lot of players transferred when he came in and Jameel Adai was fired, but he's had a couple years and we don't have anyone in place to fill those roles. And then someone like Sean Reagan, who was QB's coach. And then whenever Graham Harrell was brought in, there was no position for him. So they stuck him at tight ends. Um, after Trickett left. And I don't know exactly what he's on the staff for, what he's good at other than being Neil Brown's friend, but, you know, kind of wasting a position on someone who doesn't really bring much to the table when you could be using that to develop. And right now he's coaching tight ends and our tight end group has been terrible. So um, it just kind of goes to show how important each position coach is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% with you. And even, you know, expanding on the position coaches, I mean, I know Jordan Leslie has had some success here. He had three good years before this season, but you could argue this season is bad enough that, I mean, I would be okay if he was forced out at the end of the year because how many times is our defense going to rush three and drop eight guys back playing five, ten yards off the line of scrimmage before the ball is even hiked to try to compensate for a spotty secondary? Like, I I don't know. Uh, you're not helping anybody out. It doesn't seem like all you're doing is giving the opposing quarterback just ample amount of time to find someone wide open. And uh, I don't know. It seems like anytime we try to turn up the pressure, it seems like that's when our defense really gets going. It gets them excited. They're getting pressure on the quarterback. Um, And like we talked about earlier, our defense did play better in the second half against TCU. But um, I mean, when are we going to get four good quarters out of that defense. You're going to go the entire season without, you know, a decent game from them. Like, I I don't know. I don't know. Is that asking too much? (laughs) I I would hope not. Um, So I'm jumping down to one, two, three, four. Um, And I think this kind of ties into what you just left off with is that he cannot admit when he is wrong. So it took him three years to remove himself as offensive coordinator, despite the offense being really, really vanilla and underwhelming with him as offensive coordinator. He pushes, it's obvious he pushes his philosophies on his coordinators. We play a conservative defense. We play a conservative offense. Even when we have guys who have shown the ability to be aggressive before in both Graham Harrell and Jordan Leslie, like you said, now we're getting more conservative. 
which seems to be Neil Brown's MO. And he also refuses to bench starters that were named in the summer. I mean, despite us losing all these games so far this year, how many changes have we seen to anyone who was named a starter in the summertime? Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. I'll, I'll give him credit. He is throwing a lot of guys out there on defense to try him out, but it seems like to start the next week, it's it's the same starters every time. So he does always just go right back to default to start every game. So uh, I'm 100% with you there. And to piggyback on that, when is Shane Lyons going to admit that he made a mistake as well? Because he yeah. seems just as stubborn and supporting Neil Brown. And I understand you got to support your guy in public. He's still your head coach. But I feel like he just seems like the type of guy who's not good going to admit that this was a bad hire. Yeah, that's a great point, too. I mean, for whatever reason, Lyons is being very hush-hush about it. I know he's made a statement um, a few weeks ago, but, you know, it was very noncommittal. There was really, you know, maybe he wants to handle things behind closed doors, but you know, it's just not really giving West Virginia faithful any hope that it's really being thought about, you know, where most of the people are getting news from bloggers and YouTubers and podcasters like us. Um, And it's all kind of hearsay because we hear the same mumblings everyone else is hearing. Maybe we hear a little bit more um, from other people um, than us will, but Know, it's all just speculation, you know, even if you're talking to someone who has money or who has influence or is a donor, um, they can say whatever they want, but it doesn't really mean anything until they do anything. And Shane Lyons addressing it would be, um, would carry weight to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% with you. Um, so the next one I have on my list, number five is he cannot motivate teams on the road. Um, I highlighted just a few, but I'm I'm sure there's some that I missed on here, but um, the games that come to mind are Baylor in 2021, where we didn't show it all, show it up really at all. Um, Texas tech this year, where we didn't show up at all again, Texas this year, where we didn't show up in the first half, Iowa state in 2020, where we didn't show up really at all. Um, And I'm sure there's numerous others where we just came out flat or finished flat, didn't play a full full quarters and, I understand the travel in the Big 12 sucks, but that's not an excuse because he's been doing it for four years. You have to find something that works. I'm with you. And I, I listened to his press conference today, and I will give him credit. He said he was going to change some stuff for this Iowa State game. He did admit that his team came out flat against Texas Tech, which, I mean, of course they did. That's kind of <laughs> easy to admit. But um, um, the fact that he said that you could sense that they're not really – motivated and showing up I mean that's that's not anything I really remember any other head coach saying in a press conference prior to Neil Brown um and obviously Dana had times where he showed up on the road and really laid an egg but this just seems to be more common than ever under the Neil Brown era so I don't know what he's going to do different I think this Saturday against Iowa State is going to say a lot um because that's a tough defense and if they show up play flat and um, lose pretty badly. I, I yeah, I, I think that's going to say a lot. And I think uh, there's going to be even more pressure on Shane Lyons from the donors. Yeah, for sure. Um, number six, the penultimate reason, um, poor game management. Um, some examples, and these are all recent, but, you know, I didn't go back 
for the past couple of years just because there's been so many this year. But too conservative against Kansas at the start of the second half where we ran the ball, I think, almost twice as much as passing when we had a lead. And it was clear the game was going to be a shootout. And we just let Kansas get back in the game. And we didn't start throwing again until we were down by two scores. Um, the refusal to go no huddle against Texas. We talked about this in our Texas recap podcast where we came out pass heavy, but we didn't we didn't up the tempo, which is what Texas Tech did against Texas. That seemed to be successful. Um, no game situation awareness in TCU. The onside kick, running the ball with under four minutes left. Um, a five-minute drill when you're down by two scores in the fourth, et cetera, the things that we just mentioned earlier. And also the timeouts at random times in the game, um, whether it's right after a kickoff or right after a change of possession or as soon as we get into the red zone, just little things like that, that when if you're watching other teams play, you just don't see happen that often. Yet when you see it with WVU, it's become kind of expected at times and we're becoming numb to it. I'm 100% with you. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And I just thought that was the consensus that everyone felt that way. I remember listening to Sportsline uh, a couple weeks ago, and Coach Coach Hunter was kind of sticking up for Neil Brown saying, uh, if you don't see someone call a timeout to start a drive from time to time in college games, then you're just not watching a lot, a lot of college football. I've been watching college <laughs> football, like, most of my life all the time. And no, like, I – you just don't see that a lot. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. That only seems to happen consistently with WVU. Um, and, and it's almost expected at this point, which is kind of sad. Uh, they took an early timeout against TCU when they were on defense. And I was actually okay with it because, of course, their defense wasn't lined up right and they, they were trying to save the play. Um, what kills me is when it's on offense, when, like, you should be in control. You should know what's about to happen. You don't have to adjust that much to what the defense is doing. They should be adjusting to what you're doing. The only thing you're adjusting to is maybe your play call. So I don't know why it happens so much on the offensive side. That's what kind of drives me insane. Yeah, same here. You know, I'm thinking more on the offensive side because, you know, you do have to call timeouts on defense to, you know, in case there's alignment issues or, or things like that. Um, that happens. I mean, sometimes you just don't have the right personnel out there. But on offense, like you said, you control things. And, you know, you really shouldn't be making substitutions so late that you're going to potentially have a delay game. You really shouldn't be calling plays in so late that your quarterback has to rush or call a timeout. And those things happen too often. And then also with the change of possessions going from defense to offense or from kickoff return team to offense, um, you know, it just doesn't seem like there's any you know, discipline or kind of preparedness of the players in order to execute what the coaches expect um, to be done. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe the coaches are expecting the players to know these things. Um, but that, that's unfair to the players because every school that they played for before, whether it's college or high school or prep or JUCO is run differently. So you can't expect people to know this, football stuff um, that may seem like common knowledge to you because you're the coach. Yeah. Well, and once again, like it's your job as the coach to have your team prepared. And just once again, it, it seems like we've been lacking in that for four years now. Yep. And my final reason is maybe the one that I have the least to talk about, because I think it speaks for itself, but it's just the poor discipline. I mean, for, for someone who runs, um, 
an organization that, that's run on family and kind of seems like he he tries to claim he holds players accountable for different things, um, especially when it's off the field stuff, which I agree with. You know, he has been a little bit more um, assertive with dealing with players with off the field issues um, on the field. You know, we're still seeing the same issues where we have false starts, um, misalignments, um, things like that. You know, the procedural stuff that happened way too often, either early in drives or in crucial situations like when we're in the red zone or if we just get a long first down or we just cross the 50. You know, I, I don't mind the holding so much. I don't mind, um, you know, some of the more, you know, you're trying penalties. Uh, maybe you're trying too hard, but it's the procedural stuff, like the things like you got to know what the snap count is. Um, you got to know where to line up. And those things happen way too often, um, especially in really bad situations. Yeah, 100% with you. We've been critical of them uh, during this football season in particular for not holding people accountable. And then finally, it seemed like he did here and there. I mean, Tony Mathis sat out a lot when he fumbled in the Virginia Tech game. And look at how the team responded. I mean, Donaldson and Justin Johnson had amazing games. And then what did Tony do, you know, just a couple games later, like against Baylor? I mean, he was running harder. Mm -hmm. I I think you do send a message doing that. Um, And and yeah, he just doesn't seem willing to do that a lot. In fact, something that really stands out to me is after the Texas Tech game, he goes, I'm going to go back, watch film. And anyone who was not hustling and slacking is going to be benched next week. Was anyone benched for the TCU game? <laughs> I don't I think, think they. So. No, I don't think they were. So I feel like he says all this stuff to seem intimidating, but uh, I mean, is anyone really taking him serious? He he doesn't really have a track record of proving it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, kind of looking at all those points together, it's just you know someone who's just not made to coach at this level. And again, we I reiterate that you know I think he's a nice guy. He's someone that's easy to root for. But you can't have four years and not see any improvements in any of these areas. And in fact, in some areas, regress. Um, Four years is long enough. Um, You have enough time to get a full roster of your players. You have enough time to move around players on your people on your coaching staff. And you have enough time to teach your players discipline and the way that you want them to play. Um, And unfortunately for him, he just hasn't done it. So I think it's time that we move on. Neil Brown. I'm with you too. I mean, we're on the record last week saying, you know, we, I hope Neil Brown's successful wherever he goes. It's just not working here. It's been four years. It's not working. I think it's best for both parties to just go their separate ways. I hope Neil Brown goes to a school down the road and becomes a good head coach. It just seems like it's not going to be happening in Morgantown. And, and as a fan, I'm ready to win. This is something else I wanted to talk about. I've heard a lot of fans claim that they're just getting used to this. They, they're they almost numb to losing. They're, they're kind of losing like feelings. Like they don't care as much when it's game day. I've heard it on radio shows. I've heard it on, or I've seen it on social media. I even heard it in the stadium a little bit um, during the TCU game. And that's just not a statement you want to hear from your fan base. That's not something we're used to hearing in Morgantown. From 2002 to, to 2018, I think West Virginia only had one losing season over the tenure of three different head coaches. And now in Neil Brown's four years, we're on the verge of having our third losing season. 
in, in just four years. So, I mean, why are some fans okay with this? If you're getting used to losing, then to me, a, a culture change needs to be made because in, in most of my like WVU fandom, we weren't known as losers. And I honestly feel like that is what we're becoming. Like you talk to fans from other schools and most of them are just starting to view us as, oh, you're, you're a West Virginia fan. Your team loses all the time. That's not the reputation you want, especially when you're trying to recruit kids to your program. And if, if this goes on too long, you know, 18-year-olds will only know you as a program that loses a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're also kind of missing out on a window of kids now that grew up watching some of the most dynamic players in West Virginia history. I mean, when you talk to, when you see interviews from uh, NFL players and athletes say, you know, who's the most excited college football player you've ever seen and how many of them are saying Dave on Austin, how many people have that um, highlight reel kind of on their YouTube playlist. Um, that's something you can recruit to because people know Tavon, people know WVU. Um, but, you know, to your point with, with the people becoming numb to it, but also some people just defending Neil um, I do think that people are afraid that we end up again with someone like Dana, um, which Dana was a great coach. And, but I also understand from a personality point of view, from a you know representative of the state point of view, he wasn't really someone that I think a lot of fans, a lot of typical kind of people who live in West Virginia sort of fans um, could really relate to because he was much more of kind of a, you know, a, a wild card sort of guy. And, you know, he really didn't provide that comfort and that energy and that passion about West Virginia that we've all grown accustomed to in our head coaches. But, you know, I don't think by moving on from Neil Brown, does that mean we need to go out and get another Dana Holgerson type player or coach? There are so many other options out there. There are so many other guys with ties to the state. There are so many other guys out there right now with head coaching experience or head or, you know, coordinator experience at a big school who I think would be completely different than what Dana brought to the table and probably be a lot more personality, personality wise, like Neil Brown, but a little bit more competent as a head coach. Um, you know, and I know some of the names that are being thrown around like Hugh freeze, he comes with some baggage and, and some other guys out there, but, the chances of us getting someone like that, you know, you got to think there's probably at least a dozen guys that we're going to at least talk to if we do have to make this move. And the athletic department is aware and the donors are aware of what Dana brought to the table and what that did to WVU fans. So that's going to be something that's taken into account. So if you're worried about losing Neil because of the type of person he is, don't, because I I'm confident that the administration, the donors are going to go in there and bring in someone who, not only can coach football, but also someone who's personable and can, can reconnect with the fans and rebuild that bridge that Neil is kind of slowly disintegrating under his feet. Now I'm with you. And just kind of to wrap this up, um, I've also heard some fans say, well, what if we bring in a guy who's worse? Um, and I hate to quote Mike Tomlin because sometimes Tomlinisms get on my nerves, but you can't live in your fears. Um, I mean, if that if your idea is I don't want to win five and six games every year because we could be winning two to three games, 
once again, I'm sorry. That's a loser mentality. If you're keeping Neil Brown around just because you think the next guy might be worse, then that might be the worst excuse I've heard for keeping him thus far. Um, what if the guy's way better? I mean, you can't you can't um, have such a pessimistic view on the whole outlook. Um, I think we've reached our ceiling with Neil Brown. And if fans are happy with like five wins a year, then I'm sorry that you're not a true fan because, or you haven't been a fan for very long because for the past 20 years, that has not been the mindset of most West Virginia fans around here. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it goes back to stats that we've talked about before where it comes to how successful WVU has been as a program for almost the last 50 years. Um, You know, we've only ever fired one other head coach. Um, we've only had, I don't, maybe only a handful of losing seasons over the past 50 years or so. Um, you know, the chances of us bringing in someone who ends up being worse than Neil are slim because you learn from your mistakes. And I'm sure Neil Brown or not Neil Brown, but Shane Lyons is getting a lot of flack from not only his bosses, but also, um, the donors who are saying this can't happen again, you know, and he understands that whatever decision-making process he has to go through in this, um, he has to be thorough and he has to make sure to check all the boxes. Cause I feel like, you know, if you remember whenever Dana left, he left a lot later than um, other coaches did. So our, basically it felt like our coaching pool to choose from was Tony Gibson, Luke Fickle and Neil Brown. I mean, there's really no one else at that time. Um, and, uh, I think the rumor was Luke Fickle turned down the job. So it was basically Neil Brown or Tony Gibson. Um, and so, you know, it, the, the situation is completely different this time. And, you know, Shane Lyons can kind of control the situation by timing when he wants to fire. He can go behind the scenes. He knows that Neil is out on his way out the door. He can start doing the searches now and do a more thorough um, interviewing process to make sure he selects the right guy. We're not rushed this time. We have time. Yeah. with you. And maybe they're just seeing how Neil Brown finishes out this year. Keep in mind, if he wins the three of the next four games, WVU is going to a bowl game. I mean, uh, I'm sure most people don't see that as being very likely, but it's still on the table. So like I said, maybe this Iowa State game is uh, really going to say a lot about the future of this program. We shall see. Um, but that's it for us guys. We're going to make another video tonight. We're going to talk about the new media deal of the big 12. We're going to talk about Jose Perez coming to the basketball program, and we're going to break down the Iowa state game. So head on over and check out that video. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time guys. Thanks everyone.